Uh, today's scripture reading is Psalm 77, which can be found in the bulletin or Bible app if you wish. I'll give you a moment to... Uh, I cry out aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of the old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his gotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the ears of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wondrous of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your mighty your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. When the water saw you, O God, when the water saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled, the clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led the people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is the word of God. again this morning um, under the the theme of the lost art of lament so think back as far as you can in your life and and ask yourself this question how did I learn to cry the answer to that question to life in a fallen world and it's likely the very first thing you did. For most of us, our birth story is that we came into this world crying and reaching out for comfort and security because we instinctively knew at a level far deeper than our conscious thought that we are vulnerable and we live in a world that isn't safe. As we've gotten older, the condition of the world hasn't changed. 
We've simply developed ways of coping with these terrifying truths. But our methods of coping with the unpleasant realities of life often fail to honestly deal with the underlying problems. And sooner or later, something happens in each of our lives that wrenches these facts out of the mental compartments that we've tried to confine them to and lays them before us in a way that we can't ignore. Maybe it's the death of a loved one. Maybe it's a terrifying medical diagnosis or a lost job or maybe a culmination of a number of less obvious things driving us to a place of hopeless despair or out of control worry. That seems to be the case in our psalm today. Whatever the particular catalyst in your life, it is being used to call you to face these truths honestly and to wrestle with them before God. He gave us a book of prayers in the Psalms, almost half of which are in the minor key. God lays out the pattern for his people to work through all the different varieties of pain and suffering that they might encounter in life. And this pattern is commonly called lament. Uh, Mark Brogop, in, uh, in his excellent book on this topic, uh, called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercies, uh, he defines lament this way. He says, lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. God has... In an article uh, published by the American Psychological Association, um, this is all the way back in 2014, but... Uh, it's always kind of stuck with me. Uh, the article was called The Lasting Impact of Neglect. And in this article, uh, Dr. Nathan Fox, who is the director of the Child uh, Development Laboratory at an understaffed uh, orphanages in Romania, and he describes walking into this infant room, and it's just this room filled with cribs full of infants, and he describes... Um, being caught off guard by how eerily quiet it was. These infants there were, were fed and changed and bathed on a set schedule and not given any attention outside of those activities. And so Dr. Fox believed that these babies at an incredibly early age had learned that nobody would respond to their cries. And so they didn't see any point in trying at all. And that's an absolute tragedy. Once these children succumb to the belief that they are absolutely alone in the world and that no one will comfort them, they stop seeking for it. And their silence betrays their belief system. Is this your spiritual reality? Are you hesitant to cry out to God in your pain because you don't believe he will answer? Or maybe you don't believe that he cares. Or maybe he cares, but you don't believe that he's capable of doing anything about it. You see, pain and suffering has a way of surfacing our functional theology. That is what, what we really believe when it comes down to brass tacks, not just what we say we believe. And I don't raise this point to heap shame on anyone because the Bible says that we are all conceived and born in sin. And one of the implications of that fact is that it's perfectly natural for us to feel 
separated from God. It's perfectly natural, yes, but if you are a Christian, it's also a lie. And the first step to combating this lie is to break our silence before God in our pain and suffering. And that's the first point. Um, if you look at the back of your bulletins, there's an outline there. And we'll move through this psalm under three, three headings or three steps. The first being to break the silence. And then the second is to be honest. And the third is uh, choose to remember. Right. So verses 1 to 3. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Asaph, in taking this first step of turning Godward with his pain, refuses to believe the lies that his experience are tempting him with. He knows that our fallen human minds have an interpretive bias against God. And he's no less human than any of us. And so he would likewise be tempted to self-soothe or to turn to methods of escape or avoidance or numbing. Just look at us. Maybe we run to drugs or alcohol. Maybe we run to risky or promiscuous behavior. Or maybe our particular brand of coping is less obviously self-destructive. Uh, maybe we escape into video games or YouTube or Netflix or food or fitness or pour ourselves into our work. We can make but Asaph courageously takes this first step towards breaking the cycle of inward turning. He refuses to be dragged further down into despair and hopelessness without a fight. But he knows it's a fight that he can't win on his own, so he turns to He will hear me, Asaph says. But when you read the first nine verses of this psalm, does Asaph really seem like the kind of person who's confident that God is going to answer his prayer? No, of course not. So what is going on here? Asaph is choosing to lean on prior knowledge in defiance of his emotional experience. And this is such an important thing to see. So often this comes up in with my discussion with hurting Christians. We all say the same thing. I know in my head that God is good and he's in control, but I just can't bring myself to feel it in my heart. And we live in a culture that constantly encourages us to follow our hearts. But what we really need to do is learn to trust the objective truths that God has revealed about himself over our feelings in these moments. And Asaph demonstrates that here. He's reaching for God, seeking for him, despite the fact that when he even thinks about God, he moans in agony. When he attempts to meditate on God, he can't even muster the strength. Every fiber of his being is screaming to him that God has abandoned him. Yet he perseveres in prayer. 
And that is ultimately the lesson to be learned here in this first step. It's taking this step is crucial to our spiritual maturity. If we allow ourselves to stay bogged down in our circumstances, believing our emotions over our maker, our relationship with him will be severely stunted. It's a profound step of faith to pursue God in the midst of pain and suffering. But as we are going to see here in our psalm, it yields surprising and incredible results. And I'm sure those of us listening pray. And secondly, we must be honest. All right, you will accomplish nothing if you paper over your true feelings out of a sense of uh, a false sense of piety or a belief that God can't handle your mess. And this does require a caveat because there is a popular way of thinking in modern evangelicalism that says, uh, go ahead and vent your rage at God if he can handle it, right? Um, and I have no doubt that he can handle it. Uh, but I don't think the Bible ever gives us license to rage against God. But it certainly does encourage us to be honest about how we feel. So read, let's just look at verse 4. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Asaph isn't pulling any punches here. He comes right out with his finger pointed at God. He says, you hold my eyelids open. In a slightly unorthodox way, he was professing a belief in God's sovereignty over all things. He's saying, it is you, you who are in control over all things, orchestrating and unifying all of the details of history from the very beginning to the very end. It is you who has ultimately allowed this suffering in my life. And here lies the great paradox that makes lament so necessary. This is the atheist's favorite argument against the existence of God in the Bible. Who is all-powerful and all-good with the existence of terrible suffering in the world. And the presence of suffering in the world does seem to suggest, at least on the face of it, that either God isn't powerful enough to stop it, or he doesn't care to, or he doesn't exist, and this is all just random bad luck. But what that argument fails to take into account is that perhaps, as finite beings, we can't quite see the whole picture, and that God is maybe preventing something far worse from happening or accomplishing some far greater good that we cannot yet comprehend. And so we need to consider, we need to take stock of what we do know. So Asaph says, this is verse 6b, he says, Then my spirit made a diligent search. And this is the first clue we get that Asaph is starting to make a move. He's preparing to turn back towards a right understanding of who God is. But he still has to put his deceitful emotions down. And so he voices a series of questions that reveal the promises of God that he knows in his head, but he can't feel in his heart at the moment. 
verse 7 to 9. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Asaph seems to have in mind here God's own words of self-revelation at Mount Sinai that, that we have in Exodus 34. And there God is establishing his relationship with Israel after bringing them out of Egypt. And he's essentially introducing himself to them for the first time. And this is what he says about himself. He says, the Lord, the Lord, God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And Asaph knows these words. He would have known them since he was a little boy. And so what Asaph seems then to be asking behind these questions is really something more like, God, do you still love me? Or have you changed your mind? Like a child hearing that God is always happy to do so, but maybe not in the way we think. And so this brings us to the third step that we choose to remember Verse 10, this is the hinge, this is, this is the pivot of the psalm. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. This is a crucial moment. Asaph doesn't just leave his questions hanging, he does something. He says, I will appeal to the, to the, right, the years of the right hand of the Most High God. And in popular um, Israelite parlance of the time, I guess. Um, the right hand of God is symbolic language, and it represents uh, the victories that God won on behalf of his people, the judgment that he dealt to their enemies, but most importantly, um, sorry, <laughs> it represented God's gracious sustaining of his children in their hour of need. And so Asaph commits to focusing on the evidence of God's commitment to his people. And the next four lines show Asaph actively remembering, pondering, meditating on the mighty deeds, works, and wonders of the Lord as recorded what would have been for him, I guess, in the first five books of our Old Testament. And he goes to the very words of God he believes everything changes. Asaph's focus has shifted from himself and how he's feeling about his circumstances to God and how he has what he has made known about himself. He's no longer nostalgically pining for the good old days. He's shattering this inward turning cycle. And as he does this, God ministers these truths to him to the point that he actually breaks into spontaneous worship. Look at verse 13. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? This is the key that unlocks the cell of despair and self-pity that Asaph has been trapped in. He acknowledges God's holiness. He turns away from this watered-down version of God that he's been bringing his complaints against and and turns to the God who is entirely set apart and other. 
We can't even possibly presume to know what he is thinking. Because your way is holy. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, very well-known verses. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The Asaph has identified the fatal flaw in his thinking from the first half of the psalm. We are finite creatures created by an infinite God. We are clay, and he is the potter. So when we try to understand what God is thinking using anything other than his words that he's given us by virtues of our limitations, we will ascribe human attributes and motivations to God. So when Asaph asks what God is great like our God, he's acknowledging that our bent as tiny-minded humans is to try and capture God in human categories. And all of his questions in 7 to 9, verses 7 to 9, would be perfectly reasonable to ask a God with human attributes. But this is the Holy One of Israel. We can almost see Asaph's thinking being reprogrammed in real time. And so Asaph continues unpacking that thought in verses 14 and 15. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Now it's getting personal. The might and power of Israel's God has been made known to the peoples, but he has redeemed his people. This holy set-apart God has chosen a people to be set apart for him. And he made a covenant with them, saying that he would be their God and they will be his people. And these are Asaph's people. So this is Asaph's God. And if you haven't caught it yet, he's referring to a very specific event in Israel's history. Here's a bonus question. How does God introduce himself at the beginning of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20? Um, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is the redemption of the children of Jacob and Joseph that Asaph is pointing to. And the Exodus, in particular, the crossing of the Red Sea, had become the paradigmatic deliverance event in the Old Testament. And Asaph zooms in here because it is concrete evidence of God acting on behalf of his people in an undeniable way. Verse 16. When the waters saw you, O oh God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings rehearses the event in vivid detail piling up the examples of God's incredible power and control. And it's a terrifying scene. But this is what sets up the last two verses to be so beautiful. Imagine yourself as an Israelite pressed against this raging, storming sea, being closed in by Pharaoh and his armies, all of whom um, are very upset with you over the recent deaths of their firstborn children. 
Um, there's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. Your choices are slaughter by Egyptian or drown in the sea. And just when all hope seems to be lost, a way of escape opens up. Verse 19, your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. No one would have predicted this type of event. No one expected it with the exception of maybe Moses. And we hear an echo of verse 13 here, right, where Asaph said, Your way, O God, is holy. But what was God's way? He didn't airlift them out of there or rapture them or send a cloud for them to hop on and float away. Sorry. <laughs> no, his way was through the sea. The angry, swirling, dark, chaotic deep surrounded them. Really put yourself in their shoes. Like imagine these towering walls of water on either side of you. Um, I would have been freaking out, like imagining these things crashing at any time. Like, so I'm going to move on. Um, but my point is that God's incredible act of deliverance still required the Israelites to trust him enough to follow him, right? And so you see God in his inscrutable wisdom often leads us through circumstances that terrify us. But it's in exactly those places that we learn to trust him by taking the hand of a father who cares for us more deeply than we can comprehend and following him through the hard things in life. As Christians, we do not look to the Exodus event for assurance. But rather, we look to the event that the Exodus foreshadowed. We look to the cross. A day when the land was plunged into darkness at noon. All of nature was rumbling and groaning, and there were earthquakes and rocks splitting open. And Jesus, hanging there on a cross, broken and bloody, was the only man in history who could legitimately ask the question, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Isaiah 53 anticipated this question. It says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. He was crushed so that we could be healed. He was forsaken so that God would never abandon us in our time of need. My friends, the angry, swirling, dark, chaotic deep of sin that surrounded us and separated us from God caved in on Jesus and crushed him so that we could have a way through. And notice where the psalmist leads us. Still in the midst of it all, anticipating deliverance, but not yet in him. And maybe this is where you're at. Struggling, 
fighting to believe that God is present with you in your pain and that he cares. My friends, to hurt is human, but to lament is Christian. It takes our pain and transforms it into an opportunity for worship. Cry out to him. Be honest about your doubts and fears. And then commit to remembering the unbelievable lengths he went to to rescue you and bring you back into right relationship with him. Do you honestly believe that he's going to abandon you now? For anyone here this morning who is not a believer, I've been addressing Christians almost exclusively this morning uh, but this is simply because the practice of lament is a necessarily Christian practice. But I couldn't possibly let you leave here today without having been told that all of these promises and comforts that you have been hearing about are freely offered to you in Jesus Christ. And so if you want to know more about that, please come find me afterwards. I'd love to talk with you about it. Let's pray. Father, we are such forgetful creatures. Our hearts lead us wherever the wind blows, it seems. But especially when you call us to go through hard things, Lord, it's so hard to remember, to believe. Lord, we thank you that you are not like us. You're in control of all things. That you don't love us one day and leave us the next. Lord, teach us to treasure up these truths in our hearts in such a way that we would never again forget them. We pray these things in Jesus' name, who is our way. Amen.